0: Good evening, Good evening it's a blessing to be with you today, uh, tonight, and to have the opportunity to bring a message from God's Word. Uh, I have to confess that uh, this is my first time in India, and I have been le- working to learn one word uh, this whole time that I've been here, and I think I've got it right, so let me try it. Is it's Jamasi? <laughs> yes, alright, finally got it right, Sonny. Um, But I am glad to be here with my brother Wayne from the United States, and one of the things that has impressed me as I've been here is the fact that we could come all the way from around the world in the United States to India, uh, come to a place where we have different races, come to a place where we have different languages than what we are used to. Come to a place where we are completely outside of our element and yet we worship with believers who worship the same God, who worship in the same spirit, who follow the same Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You have been a great encouragement to Wayne and myself as we have worshipped together with uh, brothers and sisters in uh, Siliguri and in Dohar and in several villages between here and there. And we are blessed to know that the Lord is working here in India just as he is working in the United States because we worship the one true God. Amen. We worship a God who is not limited by space, He is not limited by language, He is not limited by uh, time or even our own efforts. He is the God of the universe and sovereign over all things and He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above anything we could ever ask or hope. And so tonight we want to see just that very thing as we look at John chapter 4. If you haven't already turned there, go ahead and turn and look with me at John chapter 4. This is probably a very familiar story to you. All of you are good students and have been studying your Old Testament and your New Testament. We're going to do a little bit of exercise in what you know and in what you understand about the Old Testament and about the New Testament tonight. As we look at John chapter 4 and look at this beautiful story about God working or Jesus working in the life of one woman to bring her to know Him as the one true Messiah who brought uh, living water to her. Um, But before we get into this text, I would like to pray for us. Pray that the Spirit would work through this passage to teach us tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to You tonight, Lord, and we confess that You are the Giver of all life. Lord, that you, from the very beginning, you spoke and all that we see and all that we know has come into existence. And Lord, you didn't just stop there in your life-giving effort, but Lord, you every day work to sustain us through your presence in our lives. You give us life and breath and everything that we have. And so, Lord, we come to to praise you because you are the God of the universe who gives us all life and sustains all life. And Lord, we come tonight to confess that we are needy. Lord, we are thirsty. We need the truth of your word. We need it to pour over us, to wash over us and to make us clean. We need your word to pour into our hearts so that we might know you and so that we might be changed. And so, Lord, we come as a thirsty and needy people to ask that you would work through this word to convict us of sin and to convict us of our need for you and to lead us into all truth. And Father, that we know that it is not the person who speaks who has the power. It is not the person who leads and worship who has the power. It is your spirit who has the power to change lives, to encourage us to go and to do what you have called us to do. And so, Father, I pray that you would work through me, your clay vessel. Lord, I confess that I am weak and unable to do anything without your provision. And so, Father, I pray that you would do that very thing now as we study from your Word. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So. As we go through this text tonight, I want you to be searching within your heart for the answer to this question. And that is this. Do you this day have a right understanding of your position before God? Now that might sound like a strange question to ask a group of seminary students who have come from all over India and all over the nearby countries to to study God's Word and to seek to understand who God is. But I think it's an important question nonetheless to ask, do you this day, as you are are striving to know God more, as you are seeking to understand His ways, as you are delving into His Scripture, do you understand your position before God? Because even as a person who has lived in Christ for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, we still struggle with what our position is before our Holy God. And so as we look at this text today, I hope that you will search in your heart to know what your position before God is. What what does God think of you? How does He value you? What is His view of you? And how can you know that? And I want to look at this text in three parts as we uh, study it together tonight. The first point that I want to look at is the fact that Jesus is a wise Savior. The second point that I want to look at is living water. And the last point that I want to see is a true worshiper. So we will look at a wise Savior, living water, and a true worshiper. So, to begin, let's look again at verses 1 through 6 and understand what God has to say for us as He reveals Jesus to be a wise Savior. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. In the first verse of this text, we find something that Jesus does uh, uh, regularly, especially in the book of John. We find out in this first verse that Jesus has begun to gain popularity. Notice it says that the Pharisees were noticing that Jesus was baptizing more people than John the Baptist. You see, the Pharisees were the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They uh, worked and and lived under a strict code, under a strict law, and they obeyed God's law as best they could, and they were the ones that were uh, the most influential, you might say, in Jesus' day. But they began to notice that Jesus was even baptizing more than John the Baptist. He was becoming famous, you might say. And Jesus has a habit of... Especially in the book of John, every time he begins to gain popularity, he does something totally unexpected. Something we, as human beings, would probably never do. You see, in John chapter 2, it says that the people began to uh, recognize that he was a great teacher and they began to follow him. But it says that Jesus, knowing their heart, withdrew himself from them. In, in this passage, in John chapter 4, we find that when, when the Pharisees begin to recognize Jesus' popularity, Jesus is going to withdraw Himself from that popularity and go to the other side of the country to be away from that. And in John chapter 6, you might remember the feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus takes and He breaks the loaves and the fish and He feeds 5,000 men with just a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish. And it says that the people wanted to take him and make him king, but instead he removed himself and went on top of the mountain to pray. You see, Jesus does something totally unexpected in this verse, and whenever we see him gain popularity, instead of... Uh, using that popularity instead of doing what we would do and and making a Facebook page maybe making a website and getting his name out there putting himself on on billboards and, and gaining more popularity and starting a new ministry and doing all of that Jesus removes himself from the popularity to go and do what God has him to do Brothers and sisters, you are studying to serve the Lord as leaders in your uh, churches. When you go back to serve as music leaders or as pastors or elders or deacons, one of the temptations that you will have is to think that because you are not gaining popularity, that your ministry is is a failure. That you are not doing all that the Lord can has for you to do because people are not coming to you in huge masses like the 5,000 came to Jesus. Or like you see on TV with massive crowds at a, at a stadium that are following a preacher. And you might think that, Lord, you, what are you doing? I'm, fa- I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to do, and yet I'm failing. But I want you to recognize that our Lord and Savior did not seek the large crowds. And he did not honor those who would recognize his popularity. He went and he left that situation to go for one woman in a despised country and of a despised race. Brothers and sisters, our task as pastors and elders and deacons and music leaders and worship leaders is not to gain popularity, but rather to be faithful to our Lord. Our task is to be faithful to the calling that He has given us. To be faithful to preach the gospel. To be faithful to be ready in season and out of season. And Jesus is our supreme example of that. Because He was faithful to do whatever God would have Him to do. Even if it meant risking his life, even if it meant risking his popularity and his ministry, he did what he had to do for the calling that God had given him, to be faithful to what God had called him to do. And in this, uh, so Jesus leaves Judea, it says, and he goes, he's going to Galilee. But I want you to notice in verse 4, it says that he had to pass through Samaria. Samaria. Now, in this one verse, I want you to see that Jesus is a wise Savior. Now, we might think, if you, if you know anything about the way the promised land is laid out, you have Judea in the south, and you have Galilee way up in the north, and then between those two lands is a land called Samaria, And obviously, if we were good travelers, if we were wise travelers, we would go in a straight line from Judea up to Galilee through Samaria. And we might think that that's simply what Jesus was doing, that he had to go that way because maybe that was the only way way he could go. But understand that if you were a good Jew, if you were a good Pharisee, you did not Under any circumstances, allow your feet to touch the ground of Samaria. Because Jews would have no dealings with Samaritans. I'll explain why that is in just a moment. But I want you to understand that Jesus did not have to go through Samaria because that was the only road. The Pharisees and the Jews would walk completely around Samaria to get I mean yeah walk completely around Samaria to get to Galilee in order to avoid these people but Jesus it said had to go through Samaria why is that well if you look at this word in the Greek called that we translate had to it also can mean must or should or ought And in fact, if you look at the places that it is used in the New Testament, you'll find an interesting thing. That the vast majority of the time, this word refers to the purpose of God in salvation. So when John uses this word, had to, he is not saying Jesus had to go this way because it was the only way to go. But because it was part of God's purpose to save this woman of Samaria. Matthew chapter 16 verse 21 uses this same word where Jesus sa- it says of Jesus that he must go to Jerusalem in order to die for our sins. In John chapter 3 verse 7, you all probably know what Jesus says there. It sa- Jesus says, to see the kingdom of God you must be born again. In Acts chapter 4 verse 12, if you don't know this one, you definitely need to memorize it. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. That's the same word used here to say Jesus had to go through Samaria. And every time that I've found that it is used in the New Testament, it is used to refer to the purpose of God in His salvation. You see, Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria because Google Maps said that He had to. He didn't have to go through Samaria because He was a wise traveler. No, He had to go through Samaria because He was a wise Savior. And because He was being obedient to the purpose of God to save one woman for His kingdom. So Jesus leaves Samaria and he goes to the land of, uh, and he leaves Judah and he goes to the land of Samaria. And it says that he comes to a town called Sychar. Now, Sychar is not familiar to us, but in the Old Testament, this same city is called Shechem. Uh, And Shechem is not a a very prominent city in the Old Testament, but it's a city that's significant for two reasons. And there are two passages, we won't look them up, but there are two passages specifically where the, the city of Shechem shows up. One is Genesis chapter 33, 19, and the other is Joshua chapter 24, verse 32. Now, this might seem as an incidental place that Jesus would stop to speak to one woman... But I think there's significance just in the place that Jesus stops, because Jesus is stopping in a town where Jacob, the Father Jacob built, the patriarch Jacob, built an altar to God. In Genesis chapter 33:19, you might remember from your Old Testament studies, uh, Jacob has been living with his uncle. And his two wives, and finally he returns to his own hometown because his his father is about to die, and he knows that he 's got to face his brother Esau, because if you remember was let me ask, was Jacob the firstborn no, he wasn 't right He was the second born, but if you remember, Jacob stole his birthright uh, from his brother Esau, and Esau literally said that he was going to kill his brother. Now, I have a brother, and there have been times when I've said I wanted to kill him. But to be honest, I didn't mean it. I don't know if you have brothers or sisters where you have gotten so enraged that you just screamed out, I'm going to kill you! I don't know if y'all say that in India or if that's just an American thing. But, But we don't always mean it, hopefully. But... Esau literally means it. So Jacob runs from Esau and now he is returning. And if you remember in chapter 32 of Genesis, he is so worried about it that he even wrestles with God over this situation. And when he goes to finally meet Esau, he finds that Esau runs and grabs him and gives him a big hug. And they reconcile. And at this point, Jacob goes and he builds an altar in Shechem. And he calls that altar, God, the God of Israel. It's a significant thing because up until this point, Jacob referred to Yahweh as the God of my fathers. And he might refer to Yahweh as your God, but he didn't refer to God as his God. And now he builds an altar and he says, God, the God of Israel. The second place that we find the, the, the town of Shechem in the Old Testament it is in Joshua chapter 24, verse 32. And it says that after the Israelites had returned from, uh, had conquered the promised land, it says they brought Joseph's body to Shechem and they buried Joseph's body in Shechem. Now, Joseph, you remember, let me ask this, was he loved by his brothers? Do you remember the story? No, his brothers didn't love him very much. In fact, they disliked him so much that they tried to kill their brother. And there again, they didn't just mean it it, as a meaningless statement. They meant it literally. They tried to kill their brother. And instead of killing him, they sold him into slavery in Egypt. You remember the story? But Joseph became the second in command of all of Egypt, second only to the king. And then... Uh, his brothers come, and he ends up bringing his whole family into Egypt. And now his uh, his ancestors bring, or his uh, descendants bring his body into Shechem, and they bury him there in the promised land. Now, why do these two stories matter to the story that we have today? I want you to understand that Jacob was the second-born son. He should not have received the birthright that God had for his family. But because of God's purpose and plan, he did. Secondly, Joseph was an outcast by his own people. And yet God took him and made him the deliverer of his people. And gave him a a place above everyone else in in his land. You see, Jesus is going to go to a woman who is outside of the inheritance of God. And He is going to go to a woman who is an outcast by her own people. And by His work, He is going to give her the inheritance of the kingdom of God. And He is going to make her a child of God. So, that brings me to my second point that I want you to see. And that is living water. Let's read again uh, verses 7 through 15. Verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have have, have no dealings with Samaritans. So Jesus comes to Shechem and or to Sychar and he sits down next to uh, on a well at well and he's waiting there cooling himself in the heat of the day. And it says that a woman of Samaria walks up to the well to draw water and Jesus looks at her and he says, woman, give me a drink. And from that statement, Jesus, uh, this woman asked Jesus two questions that I want us to notice Today, the first question is found in verses 9 and 10. And that question is, how can you ask me for a drink? You see, this woman knew that Jesus was a Jew and she knew about a division between Jews and Samaritans. She knew that a Jew didn't even, wasn't even supposed to set foot on Samaritan soil, or ground, dirt, uh, um, soil. Do you all know Soil. I don't say it right. I say it with a southern Alabama draw. But anyway. Uh, so they they don't, they don't recognize... Uh, they, they know that... Uh, she knows that Jesus isn't even supposed to be there because Samaritans didn't have anything to do with Jews. And Jews didn't have anything to do with Samaritans. Remember back in 1 Kings chapter 12. After Solomon has died... Uh, The the land of Israel was supposed to go to Rehoboam, his son. But Rehoboam took that kingdom and he he asked his counselors what should he do. And they said you should be more lenient than than, uh, your father Solomon was. You shouldn't tax them as much as your father Solomon did. And then he goes to his friends and he asks them what he should do. And his friends say, you should tell them, my father beat you with whips, I will beat you with scorpions. Now, that's not a great political message, by the way. If you want to run for president, do not run on the fact that you're going to whip them with scorpions, okay? And that's exactly what happens to Rehoboam. Because of that statement, he receives a rebellion. And the nation is split into two kingdoms. The ten northern tribes of Israel, which later became Samaria, and the t- two southern tribes of Israel, which became Judea. And the Samaritans, the Samaritan kingdom ended up being conquered by Assyria. And because of that, they intermarried with the Assyrian people and they began to worship other gods and, and began to pollute the belief in God. And so at this point the, in, in the history of Samaria, they are worshiping on every hill a different God, much like you have out here in this country, where you can go to any restaurant or any, uh, any uh, temple and find the worship of one God or another, but not the true God. And so the Jews, trying to be God-honoring and, and respect the the laws of their gods, they decided to remove themselves from the influence of the Samaritans. And they would not have any dealings with the Samaritans. To the point that they believed that if they were to touch a Samaritan, then they could no longer worship in the temple of God until they made themselves pure again, clean themselves. And so, this woman, knowing all of this, asked, how is it that you, a Jew, can ask of me a Samaritan for a drink of water. Oh, and notice notice Jesus' response, though. Jesus says, Woman, if you knew who it was who was speaking to you and the gift of God, then you would have asked and He would have given you living water. Now, undoubtedly, this woman thought, when He said living water, she thought running water, because living water can also mean running water. So she's probably thinking that Jesus knows where a spring of water is or a river is. And she's curious about that. But is that what Jesus means when He says living water? No. Jesus means something totally different. He means something spiritual. You see, living can also mean living in the sense of the life that God gives. Let me give you a couple of examples of this same word used in other places. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, when Peter makes his great profession of faith, he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In other words, you're not the Son of the dead gods of this land. You are the sons of the living God, the only one and true God. In John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. You see, Jesus comes to bring living water. Not in the sense that it is running, not in the sense that it is flowing from a spring, but in the sense that it gives eternal life. It gives life that only God can give. So this brings us to the second question that the woman asked, where do you get that living water? Are you greater than Jacob? You see, Jacob, she says, has dug this, this well that they're sitting at with his own bare hands. And how is it that Jacob didn't, wasn't able to find living water anywhere in this land, but yet you're able to find living water? Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Now I don't know if you have ever dug a well, but I've, I've heard of it done. It's still on occasion done in our country where I'm from. And what you do is you take a shovel or a pick or, and a bucket and you dig down and you dig 30 or 40 or 50 feet down in the ground until you hit the groundwater that is under the ground. And then you drop that bucket down and you pull the water up, Right? And in times of drought, that water in that shallow well can dry up. And so uh, many times the people in Jesus' land would spend a lot of their time going from one place to another trying to find water in this well or in that well. And you see, I think there's an analogy here for us as we consider what Jesus means when He says living water and what this woman is struggling with. You see... The water that Jesus comes to bring is not run, living in the sense of the, the fact that it's running, but living in the sense of the life that it gives. And Jesus tells this woman, Look, you're, you're just like an empty and dry well. You have no water inside of you. And, and you're seeking water to fill up your daily life. You're seeking water to, to give some meaning and purpose and value in your life. And you'll run over to this well and you'll pull up water as long as it has water. And then you'll run over to this well and you'll pull up water and then it'll run dry. And you're trying to fill your life with meaning and purpose by all these different wells in your life. Whether it be relationships or money or sex or fame or profit. Whatever it is, you're trying to find purpose and meaning in these things that you think have value, and can give you life. But I want to tell you that all of those things are dry, empty wells. And the only place that you can find true meaning and true value and true purpose is in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only place where you can find water that is abundant, water that never runs out, Water that will well up inside of you as a spring of life. And so that brings me to my last point that I want you to see, and that's in John chapter four verses 16 through 26. And we want to see a true worshiper. John 4:16 through26. Jesus said to her, "Go call your husband and come here." The woman answered him, "I have no husband." Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain He who is called Christ, when He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Notice verse 15 again. Verse 15 says, The woman said to Him, Sir, uh, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Something is wrong with this situation. I don't know if you've recognized it yet, but something strange about this woman being here at this particular time by herself. Did anybody notice what time it is? In first, verse 6, it says that Jesus came to the town of Sychar and he sat down at a well, and it was about the sixth hour, as our, or as our brother read in his translation, it was 12 noon, which is right. The Jews counted time from 6 a.m. to 6 a.m. as being their day. And so their day started at 6 and ended at 6. So 12 noon would have been the sixth hour. So this woman comes in the heat of the day. Now, let me ask you this. If you had to carry your water from your house, uh, from a well that was several miles away to your house, would you go in the middle of summer in India no right wouldn't be very smart you would go in the cool of the day either in the morning or in the late evening and that's when all the other women would go to draw their water and take it back to their house but this woman isn't there in the cool of the day she is there in the middle of the day when nobody else will be there why is that Because she has something of which she is ashamed. A sin that has plagued her for many, many years. And in order to avoid the snickering, in order to avoid the pointing fingers, in order to avoid the judgment of the other women, she is coming in the middle of the day so that she does not have to face her sin. But brothers and sisters, Jesus knows this woman. He knows everything about her her whole life. And so Jesus does something very very wise, and he just asks, "Go get your husband and bring him back here, and I'll give you the water." And she says, "Sir, I don't have a husband." Now, I want you to understand, Jesus Jesus knows her. He knows everything about her, and this woman has just lied to Jesus. Because she's right that she doesn't have a husband. But she is trying to deceive Jesus in saying that, right? She doesn't want Jesus to know everything about her. And Jesus says, you're right in saying you have no husband. You have had five husbands, and the man you're now living with is not your husband. And notice the statement that Jesus makes after that. What you have said is true. Jesus has just, in this simple statement, exposed her whole life. Exposed her to be the sinner that she is. Exposed her need for forgiveness and everything she is. And now notice what she says in response to that. In verse um, 19. She says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now this is one of the greatest understatements in all of, all of Scripture. This man has just told you everything about your life. Without knowing anything about you. And all you're going to say is, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. That's all you got to come back with. But she said, she then says, we worship on this mountain. We Samaritans worship on this mountain. You worship on in Jerusalem where the temple is. And what she's doing is basically... Uh, the The common thing that we run into today if you share the faith, your faith with someone many times what you will get back is oh, really all religions are the same you worship in a Christian church we worship in a uh, mosque you worship in a Christian church we worship in a temple you get that response back and they say well who knows what the right way is she's trying to mislead jesus and misdirect the conversation off of her and on to what worship is but jesus what she thinks she is doing is distracting jesus but jesus has just taken her exactly where he wants to go and he says woman you yes you worship on this mountain and yes we worship in the temple but I want to tell you that there is coming a day, and it now is, when, God, when people will worship God in truth and in spirit. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus is saying here that God is not concerned with where we worship. God is not concerned with where we are when we worship, but who we are when we worship. He is not concerned with the the facade of our worship. He is concerned with the heart of our worship. And he is concerned with the fact that many people can put on a good face and come into church even. And present a good uh, worship style and do all the right things and go through all the right motions. And yet have no truth and no spirit in their worship. But God has come in Jesus Christ to change the dependency on a temple or the dependency on a mountain and instead of having a place where Jesus where God resides a physical place where God resides instead now he is going to reside in the hearts of his true worshipers. And the woman is uh, has had all she can Understand she is at her last ditch effort to try to distract Jesus, and so she comes down to one last statement in verse 25 where she says, The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. I know that there will be a day when the Christ will come and He will tell us all the things that you have just told us, is basically what she says in my own understanding. See, brothers and sisters, don't you see that Jesus would have this woman? He pursued her to her very last question, her very last objection, and then He gives her Himself. Notice verse 26. I, who am speaking to you, am he. Now, actually, in the original language, the statement is, I am who am speaking to you. That ought to ring a bell for you seminary students. Because when Moses comes before God in Exodus chapter 3 and 4, and he stands before he takes his shoes off and he stands before that burning bush that, where God is representing himself, and he asks God, "Who shall I say has sent me?" What does God respond? Anybody tell them, "I am has sent." Jesus is saying here, "I am." I am that Messiah. I am that source of life that you have been searching for by covering your guilt and covering your shame. I am that source of life that you have been searching for in all those men that you have married and the man that you are now living with now. I am that source of life that you cannot seem to find. I am the God of the universe. I am the Messiah that comes to lead you into all truth. So, I asked at the beginning, what is your position before God? Do you know your position before God? There are many ways that you could possibly apply this passage today. But there are three ways that I could think that this passage should hit us today as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first way is this. Be careful that you have not slipped into despair this week as you have sought to live for Christ. You see, many times, especially as we serve in the ministry, especially as we are studying God's Word and seeking to know Him more, we can begin to allow the voice of the deceiver to tell us that we are not worthy of the salvation that God has given to us that we are not deserving of it and therefore there is no way that God can love us enough to save us perhaps this week you have fallen in your obedience to God perhaps this week you have done something that you just can't seem to forgive yourself for and you want to say in your heart there is no way that God can save me the wretch that I am but brothers and sisters You are this woman. You are. You were an outcast. You were one who was outside of the inheritance of Israel. And yet God in Christ has made you His child. And He has given you His inheritance. And there is nothing in this world that can take that from you. As Paul says in Romans 8, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As you struggle with your faith, as you struggle to understand God, as you struggle with your own sin, remember that you were this woman. You did not come to Christ, you did not gain salvation by your own good works, you did not gain salvation because you were a really good Pharisee. No, it is because God in Christ sought you when you were a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue you from danger interposed His precious blood. The second thing that you might take away from this is on the opposite side of that. Be careful that you have not slipped into pride thinking that you have added to your salvation in your great efforts for the Lord. And thinking that somehow you will stand before God in heaven and say, Yes, I am here, but I am here because of these things that I have done. I am here because I attended church faithfully for years on end. I am here because I went to seminary and got a degree from a a great place like this. I am here because I added to my salvation. No, friends, you are this woman. You can add nothing to your salvation, but only, like she did, come with your cup empty and say, please, Lord, fill it with living water. Please give me the water of life. And God will fill it up to overflowing and it will never run dry again. And the third way that I think that this might apply to us tonight his brothers and sisters, be careful that you do not ignore the one whom Jesus would cross the desert and risk his fame for. Is this woman the, Mus- the Muslim subsea vendor whom you ignore? Is this woman the Hindu worker looking for help? Is this woman the ragged and haggard drunk that you purposefully avoided? Brothers and sisters, be careful that we do not skirt around the person for whom Jesus would go because He had to. We are called to follow God through the Holy Spirit and to go to the uttermost parts of the earth, if need be, to find this woman. This woman could be your neighbor This woman could be your friend. This woman could be the the person that you buy your vegetables from. But in any case, that person is a person that Jesus loves. And a person that Jesus would risk his fame for. And we must do the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a God of grace.